Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 59 of X Lapsed, where we are officially in wave two of the Dawn of X books here. Yeah, we are kicking off a whole new volume, uh, the seventh, seventh volume of Wolverine here today. And it's a biggie. It's a biggie. Um, apologies for any potential raspiness on my end here. Uh, the voice is still not up to 100%, but I'm going to give it the old college try here. I might stop a few times for a swig of water, and I'll do my best to remember to edit them out. But I can't promise I'll get all of them. But uh, we've got a big book. We've got an expensive book. I believe this is the most expensive book to this point from the uh, Dawn of X line. It's an $8 book, which is... Uh, uh, it's pretty spendy. It's pretty spendy for a book here, and uh, I figure when you when you put uh, such a such an inflated price tag on something that it damn sure better be special. So uh, maybe, maybe Deadpool will get married in it three times. But uh, let's get right into it here because we got a lot to go through. This is, of course, Wolverine Volume Seven, Number One. This had an April 2020 cover date, and there are two complete stories here, and we'll do the credits as we work our way through. The first story is called The Flower Cartel, written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Adam Kubert, or Kubert. I never know how to say that name. Colors, Frank Martin, letters, VCs, Corey Petit, designs, Tom Muller, the head of X is still Hickman, edits, Robinson White Sobolski, cover price, $7.99, and went on sale February 19th of 2020, which... Doesn't feel like such a long time ago, but uh, it's almost a year ago at this point. Uh, it's pretty wild. All right, now, we open somewhere in Alaska. Wolverine is all torn up and uh, looking kind of terminator you know, like his skin is missing and he's got the metal underneath. He, he looks like a Terminator. Now, something big just went down, and uh, he's going to need a few moments for his healing factor to, you know, kick in and do a little bit of knitting. Now, our camera pans out to reveal that his fellow X-Forcers, Domino, Jean Grey, and Quentin Quire, are all dead laying in the snow. And they're dead by Wolverine's hands. But how? Oh, great. A brand new volume of Wolverine, and we're kicking off with a a repeat. I I swear we've seen this exact same scenario kick off a Wolverine story like a half dozen times before, right? This, This isn't just me, is it? Wolverine, surrounded by dead bodies, wondering how he did it. I feel like we've seen this before, many times. Anyway, Wolverine hobbles over to Jean's corpse and is is able to deduce from her defensive wounds that she had tried fighting him off, but couldn't. Our man then notices a set of footprints in the snow and decides to give it a goo. Before we go any further, however, let's do a roll call. We got Wolverine, Marvel Girl, Call Me Kate, Sage, Domino, Kid Omega, Gateway, and Beast. Then, a double-page spread of creds, of course. Uh, The second story will not have a roll call, so just keep that in the back of your mind for (laughs) whatever good it'll do you. Now from here, we jump back in time five days, and we're back on Krakoa. Wolverine is playing hide-and-go-seek with some Krakoan kids, and Jean shows up to reveal his location to the Tots. And, uh, you know, she's not doing this just to be a, a jerk. She's doing this because Call Me Kate has just shown up and would like to have a chat with Logan. So, uh... Uh, Kitty ain't dead yet, uh, despite the fact that this book hit the shelves like a month after the issue where she dies happens. Unless her death happened within the last five in-story days, which, hey, give me my no prize. I think that might, uh, I think I, I solved it. So, Wolverine wraps up his game and he heads over to the Marauder, where he tries to act all coy about what he'd just been up to. Kitty's like, eh, cut it out. I know you were playing hide-and-seek. Wolverine insists that, no, no, it was nothing like that. 
He was just teaching the kids how to survive in the wilderness. Anyway, they head inside the Marauder for some drinks and a chat. And Kitty shows off a brand new way for her to drink whiskey. Because, uh, you see, she hates the taste, but still wants to feel drunk. So she, like, puts her hand over it and just phases it into her bloodstream. <sighs> she talks about how happy she is that Logan himself appears to be happy. And Logan says, hey, you're not wrong. But now it's time they get down to business. Now, you see, Kitty has noticed some of their drug shipments have gone missing. Sometimes it's just a few, sometimes it's a larger portion, and a few times it's been entire, an entire shipment, an entire haul, I should say, because these are the basic flowers being stolen, the Krakoan flowers, not the finished pharmaceuticals. And she'd like to get to the bottom of it, and who better than Wolverine? Next, we shift scenes to Baltimore, Maryland, and here we meet a CIA agent named Jeff Bannister. A fellow whose appearance gives us the impression that he's one of them, you know, rogue agents who follows his own his own rules, his own compass and whatnot. He's got really shaggy hair, a, you know, a full beard, and he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Uh, he's been called to a crime scene, and it's a drug lab that would, that would appear to have been a target of the cartels. Only he's able to deduce that all the dead folk in the joint done did the deed to themselves. On the table, there's a metal platter full of powdery goop. Now, Jeff takes a sniff and notes that it doesn't smell like the usual stuff they find in drug raids. Rather than it smelling like burning garbage, this stuff smells like, quote, gardens and grandmas. And he compares it to pollen. Now, pollen, of course, is from plants, but pollen is also a drug, which takes us to this next info page, which is all about pollen. Now, we learn that it's a relatively new street drug coming from a flower cartel which is the name of the story. Jeff Bannister has been given lead on this case, and he's putting together a covert operation. Some folks, uh, you know, above him are on board, others not so much. Uh, some suspicions have arisen regarding the black market of the floral drugs and their potential link back to the Hellfire Trading Company. They figure, hey, the mutants are handling everything above board. Who's to say they're not handling the black market as well, which is uh, pretty perceptive. From here, we head back to Krakoa, and we jump ahead one day. So we're four days before our opening scene. Sage reports the last three stolen shipments might be headed around, and they attempt to triangulate locations that both haven't signed the Krakoan Treaty and that are experiencing the season of winter, when due to the colder climate, the flowers yield more pollen. Now, their first stop is Russia. Wolverine assembles X-Force, which includes an unscarred domino, so... (laughs) Lord only knows when this story is actually taking place. Uh, They also call in Gateway to help with the warping because all the Russian gates are heavily guarded. And we've seen this happen before, and it's odd. You know, I grew up in the 80s, and uh, Russians were always the bad guys. They were a very safe target. And here we are, same as it ever was, several decades later, and they're back to being a relatively safe target. What are you going to do? We jump back to Baltimore, where Bannister is having a sit-down with another agent. Now, it's worth noting the right side of Jeff's head is horribly scarred and pretty gross. Anywho, this other agent talks a bit about the effects of pollen. It's said to give the user an exalted feeling. Basically, it makes the brain feel twice as smart and the body twice as strong. Jeff jokes that he could use a bump of that himself. Uh, The other agent is named Meredith Millie, and she doesn't see the humor in that, uh, but hands over some documents for Jeff to sign. Once she's out of the way, Jeff's approached by a doctor who informs him that she is awake. And so we find out that we're in a hospital where Jeff's sickly daughter is held up. Or laid up, actually. Uh, Now, it turns out his child, his daughter here, is on a wait list for some Krakoan antibody drugs. Tell you what, this is a concept I hadn't yet thought about. I just assumed that Krakoan magic meds were, like, wildly plentiful, right? Anyway, he tells his daughter that there are some bad guys stealing those petals, and that's making her daddy very angry. From here, an info page. It's the Order of X, a mutant worshipping cult, and I swear we've already had this info page a time or two before. Um, One new wrinkle here, however, is that they note that the devotees have X's sliced over their mouths. So, like, like, where their mouth is, that's where the X would cross. So it looks... It looks pretty disgusting, actually, but uh, I don't know. I guess it makes a point. Okay, three days ago from the opening scene, we're in Russia. X-Force arrives right in the middle of an Order of X ritual. Now, they're viewed as gifts from the gods, and the devotees are just all about it. 
To celebrate the arrival, the devotees decide it's time for a communion, and so they suck down some pollen. Now, Quentin Quire, he is overjoyed to be worshipped as such, and uh, decides to do a little bit of ill-advised crowd surfing. That is, before the devotees make it clear that they'd like to, uh, well, drink some of his mutant blood. And so, a fight breaks out. Wolverine advises to maim, not kill, which, is, you know, is a nice enough idea, I suppose. Suddenly, though, the devotees all begin to die. Wolverine's ticked off. He assumes that Quentin Quire just disregarded his, uh, his, you know, his order and was killing people. But Gene informs him that this ain't Quentin's doing. These goofballs are actually dying from the pollen. So from here, we jump ahead two whole days, and we're in Moscow. Wolverine is visiting some shady-looking back room of a bar, or something like that, where he meets with some shady-looking people. Now, Logan drops his duffel on the table, and inside it is an Order of X devotee. Dead. Now, the lead shady guy doesn't want to answer any questions, and he just tells Wolverine, hey, you know, this conversation's over, get the hell out of here. Wolverine notes that there is a psionic dampener surrounding this building, but, you know, he's still onto their scheme. You know, he can't, uh, these guys can't stop him from figuring things out. Now, he suggests that the Order of X bought their pollen from them, only that it was just some really bad dope with a touch of pollen cut into it. He then does this whole, that, that thing where he, like, pops the outer claws around a dude's neck while threatening to pop the third, which would, like, go right through his throat. I mean, I'm sure there's a better way to explain that, but it's the gimmick we've seen like a hundred times before at this point. I mean, it's, it's, it's always pretty cool, so I can't really fault them for it, but uh, we've seen it before. He asks where they get the flowers, right? And finally, the shady fella decides to talk. He says they get them from her. And her is a pale girl, or the pale girl. This pale girl is trying to corner the market on stolen petals, and uh, tried getting these morons working under her, where she would take, you know, 80% of the profits. And so these goons decided to try and plant their own flowers, you know, so they can keep a little bit more of the profit. This obviously ticked the pale girl off, so much, in fact, that she made our leading shady guy cook his own eyeball with his lighter while it was still in the socket. Hence why they have installed a psionic dampener. That's, it's there to protect themselves from her, the pale girl. Where would one even begin looking for a psionic dampener? I mean, do, do they have them at the Home Depot? I don't think they do. From here, we jump to the morning of the day where Logan massacres X-Force. Wolverine and Beast are at the point in Krakoa, and Beast, it's worth noting, looks a lot more like classic Beast here than the Beast we've been seeing in X-Force. And while I, I do like this look a whole lot better, it's a definite sign that there is a lack of communication between these creators. I mean, did Adam Cubitt even bother to flip through an issue of X-Force before drawing this? Because, uh, it could be two different characters. Anyway, they talk about this new pending drug war and how it's ultimately their fault. Whether it is or isn't, I mean, I guess uh, that's for other people to argue. Now, at the same time this little meeting is going on, we join Jeff Bannister at the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, now, I've never seen The Big Lebowski, but I'm imagining old Jeff talking exactly like that guy in it. Uh, anyway, he's got a sneaking suspicion that the mutants might be behind the black market sale of these drugs as well, and would like to arrange an operation in order to confirm his suspicions. From here, we finally get back to the now, which is where we're going to wrap things up. Wolverine is healing up, and he's still trudging across the snow. He finally happens across a pale girl. He pops his claws and proclaims that she made him do it. She made him kill his teammates. He then drops to his knees and finds himself surrounded by Jeff Bannister and all his men. To be continued, but we're not done yet, because uh, we have a whole second story, which thankfully only has a single page spread of creds to kick it off, so let's get right into it. Story the second is called Catacombs. Written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Victor Bogdanovic. Colors, Matthew Wilson. Letters, VCs Corey Petit. Designs, Tom Muller. I'm assuming the edits are the same. Now, Wolverine is stood on a Krakoan cliffside, commenting that things are so weird and different these days. This is a safe place, and yet people are getting killed. You know, calling back to Professor X being assassinated back in X-Force number one. Enemies are now allies. People who wanted to end the world are now trying to save it. Someone who once tried to kill you is now your neighbor. Basically, 
If you've read even a single Dawn of X book or have listened to a single episode of this program, this is all stuff you already know. All of this to say that, yes, the mutant landscape is very different. Now, you got to trust your fellow Homo Superior, but, but that begs the question, can you? Enter Omega Red. Literally, Omega Red stumbles through a crawling portal, and he, he's looking like a stretch of rough road at this point. Wolverine decides that it's with all Arcady that he's going to have to draw the line on who he can trust. And so he lunges at him with his claws popped. Unfortunately for him, Magneto is there to halt his little metal bones. Now remember, Krakoa is for all mutants, not just the ones that Wolverine doesn't mind being there. Magneto asks Logan to have a better look at Omega Red, and notice that while he's covered in blood, that much of it is his own. He then hurls Wolverine's body through the Krakoan gateway to do a little reconnaissance. And so our man winds up in Paris. Now he finds a car that stinks to high heaven, and it's dripping with a viscous fluid. And, well, uh, it's not oil. Upon opening the trunk, Wolverine is greeted by a whole lot of pale corpses and body parts, and one still-living specimen who springs out and immediately dies. But first, he does tell Wolverine that he's exactly like him. So, there's that. After some purple internal monologue about Wolverine hating Omega Red because he reminds him of his own dark passenger, we hop back to Krakoa. To the uh, prison grotto of Krakoa, to be specific, which I didn't even know they had. We learn that whatever attacked Omega Red was strong enough to cut through his carbonadium armor, but that under Cecilia Rea's treatment, he should make a full recovery. Now, Wolverine is not pleased, suggesting that there's absolutely no good in Arcady. He's a monster. To which Magneto suggests for like the dozenth time since we started Dawn of X that the same could be said about the two of them. I'm sure Ben Percy himself has written this exact same conversation twice, at least, at this point. Anyway, Wolverine's worried about the children and what Omega Med, Omega Med, Omega Red might do once free. Magneto doesn't really think all that much. After all, that's what the resurrection protocols are for. Now, Wolverine suggests that day, hey, you know, resurrection's all well and good, but it doesn't exactly erase trauma, which, uh... That's exactly what I've been arguing for this entire run at this point. And it's weird that Percy is writing this, consider how, considering how many times we've seen death being brushed off in X-Force. Yes, the trauma is real. The trauma, the experience, the witnessing, that's all real stuff. But uh, I guess we only remember that when it's convenient. Anyway, Magneto suggests that, should the time come, it'll be left to Wolverine to neutralize his foe. He then says uh, that they... Don't know the whole story yet, right? As it pertains to the car full of corpses. They don't know how they got there, what they got there, what they did, who they were attacked by, yada, yada, yada. And so Wolverine marches into the holding area of the prison grotto to ask some questions. Now, Wolverine approaches Omega Red and basically calls him out as being the worst of the worst. Omega Red smiles and asks what Logan would say if that weren't true. Let's say there were someone worse than he. He then suggests that the car full of corpses wasn't his doing. Now, Wolverine is incredulous and pretty confused. Omega Red suggests that Wolverine head back to Paris and visit a place called the King's Oboulé. Oboulé? It's a French word that, uh, that I don't know. Uh, but I did look it up, and I guess it's French for King's Dungeon, which uh, sounds like a pretty kinky place. And so, that is Wolverine's next stop. As he walks down the Parisian street, he bumps into Eris from Final Fantasy VII. She tries selling him some dog roses, but he ain't too keen on them. They stop, they stop and chat for a bit, with uh, Logan even inviting the young lady for a drink at the Obole. She she's not interested in heading inside. She says, hey, let's go somewhere else. Unfortunately, Logan has business to attend to at the Obole, so uh, they'll just take a rain, rain check on their impromptu date here. So, Wolverine heads inside and down a flight of stairs to the main area of this weird little club. And it's full of weird and creepy-looking folks. Wolverine orders an absinthe, and turns out the thing was drugged. So, uh, feels like our hero might be a little bit off his game, because this is a little too easy. So, Wolverine's KO'd by the drink, and he wakes up having been bound and hung upside down from the ceiling. He's surrounded by... Vampires. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, vampires, yeah. Mm. <clears throat> okay, let me let me try to shake that off, and we'll, we'll continue along. Okay, now one of these 
Ugh, vampires uh, literally taps Wolverine's carotid artery with, like, an actual keg tap so they can uh, share in his blood. To which, Wolverine pops his claws and decapitates the nearest vampire. He then starts swinging about like a tether ball, slicing and dicing all the creeps within reach. Then, the flower girl from earlier pops in, and she's brought with her a UV cannon. So she flips the switch, hits the lights, and turns the remaining vampires into dust. Suddenly makes sense to Wolverine why she'd bumped into him with the dog roses. I was a little less clear on this, because I could give a rat's ass about vampires or vampiric lore. So this reference was lost on me, but in hindsight, it was pretty clever. There you go. Back on Krakoa, Wolverine is checking in with Omega Red, wondering why he'd send him on like a suicide mission like that. Well, uh, Omega Red's a bad guy and he hates your guts, for starters. Uh, Red suggests that he just wanted Logan to see the truth. He says that this is going on in the Paris catacombs and that these vampires were all prisoners. As this story is being told, we get a scene of a Paris morgue where a dead guy on a slab turns into a vampire and begins feasting on the mortician. Then a bunch more vampires descend on the scene and continue to feast on that mortician. Omega Red then shares the story of St. Julian, which makes me think that Ben Percy thought this was a cool little ditty and was looking for the for like any reason to drop this bit into any story he wrote. Red only tells the story up to the just before the twist ending and says if Wolverine would like to know that twist ending, he'd better hustle to Paris or to Wikipedia, I guess. Now, to be precise, he is going to the Church of St. Julien La Peur. La Peur? I, I'm sorry, French people. I don't know how to speak your, your beautiful language. Uh, here, at the uh, Church of St. Julien La Peur, uh, he runs into the flower girl again. And we finally get a name for her, and it's Louise. She claims to be part of an ancient holy order known as the Night Guard, who are devoted to fighting the vampire nation. Oof. Okay. She guides Wolverine to an armory, which is full of vampire hunting gear and weapons. Wolverine pops his claws to signal that, hey, I've already got all the artillery I'm going to need. Now, before we know it, our tandem are walking through the catacombs. One of them steps on a trigger, which opens a trap door, and uh, they fall a great distance. Wolverine catches Luis before they make impact on the bed of sharp bones below. And our man winds up very much impaled. Many, many, many holes in his body. But, you know, he's Wolverine, so he'll be fine. Unfortunately, they're absolutely surrounded by vampires. What's more, Luis's UV cannon took the brunt of the fall and no longer works. Good thing for her, though, she's got some holy water grenades. Okay. By now, Wolverine's able to pull himself up to his feet, and he starts slicing and dicing. Unfortunately, the vampires have already captured Louise and are threatening to kill her right then and there. That is, unless Wolverine decides to give them what they're after. And what they're after is a taste. A taste of his blood. And so Wolverine lets the vampires descend and suck his blood. While this is going on, he does manage to kill one, and uh, it's one that he assumed to be their leader. Then, true to their word, they leave Louise alone. I guess vampires love him or hate him. They're, they're honest. Um, now, Wolverine comments that his healing factor kills off the vampiric enzyme so he won't turn into one. Even though I swear we've seen him turn into a vampire like a half dozen times before, right? Maybe I'm wrong. Louise comments that it's strange that the vampires would just leave like that, and Wolverine posits that they were all just freaked out because he killed their leader. To which we learn that the goofball he killed wasn't, in fact, their leader. Their leader is, duh, Dracula. And uh, I guess he's the Charles Xavier to vampires, right? So like Charles Xavier is to mutants as Dracula is to the vampire nation. Now we wrap up sometime later after Omega Red has recovered. And, you know, since his story checked out, he's free to come and go as he pleases. Now he exits through a portal where he has a rendezvous with Dracula. He's going to hand him a carbonadium doohickey or something. Now, Dracula, it's worth noting, is able to walk around in daylight. Perhaps a result of having some of Wolverine's healy blood flowing through his veins? Maybe? I don't know. I wonder, I mean, when a vampire sucks blood, does it go into their veins or does it just go in their stomach? I don't know. Anyway, we learn here that Omega Red and Dracula are in cahoots. Drac tells Red to keep up the ruse. He says, join with the mutants, but continue to obey him. And that's where we leave it. We do have an info page. It's all about blood. 
But uh, after reading like the previous 400 pages of this issue, I'm a little too fatigued to give it the attention it might deserve. But uh, that is Wolverine Volume 7, number one. Next episode, we will be taking a look at New Mutants, number eight. But uh, let's talk about this issue here. And uh, wow, it was a long one. I suppose if you're gonna if you're gonna charge eight American dollars for a single issue of a comic book, uh, well, damn sure it better be a meaty one, right? It should be a little bit thicker. Um, what we get here are two full issue length stories, which is fine. So often these days we'll get books touted as being double sized and as such being double priced, and then we wind up with like a twenty eight page story instead of a twenty page story, you know, which isn't you know a double sized issue. So in that regard, this is a refreshing change of pace, and for once, a relatively fairly priced number one issue from Marvel. You know, in Marvel, they're folks who've never met a pointless price hike they didn't like, so we'll give them a thumbs up for that. Now, as for the stories, I definitely liked one better than the other, but honestly, neither one of them really did anything for me. I will say the art on both these stories was uh, was really nice, um, you know, not bad at all. Uh, Cubit is a uh, classic ex-artist. Uh, very, very much X-Men comfort food for me. And I've liked Bogdanovic uh, ever since I saw him working on New Superman over at DC. He was the only reason I was buying New Superman. I, I really enjoyed his work. So let's start with the first story, which uh, was the one I felt was stronger of the two, probably because it didn't have vampires in it. I like the idea that there are wait lists for the Krakoan magic meds. Um, not so much for the simple fact that, you know, there are wait lists, but it was something I hadn't considered being, you know, a challenge. Though I suppose it might be a commentary on modern healthcare more than anything. I mean, the way we look at it here, the mutants are forking over the meds to the governments of these uh, nations who signed the treaty, right? But at that point, the mutants' influence ends. You know, they, they, they've made the transaction, done deal. From that point on, the government needs to allocate the drugs where they're needed. And, uh, I mean, now more than ever, we know governments are really good at dragging their feet <laughs> and getting bogged down in red tape and uh, and maybe, I don't know, maybe being uh, less about the needs of the people. So uh, maybe it's a commentary on that. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe it's just a, a sign of the times. I don't know. I like this Jeff guy. This Jeff Bannister guy, he seems like an okay dude. Uh, his motivation, his motive, motivations, motivations are sound as well. Uh, he's got a sick daughter who's on a wait list for the drugs, and here he is investigating a black market for those same drugs. So it stands to reason that he'd be motivated to do so, since he actually has a dog in this fight. Uh, something they mentioned during the story that I didn't mention during the synopsis because I wasn't sure it was important. Uh, they mentioned something about him not wanting to receive his documents digitally. He doesn't want to sign things on the computer, which I, I guess I'm very much the same way. But uh, I wonder what the point of this was, if it's going to come back around in a later story or later chapter. It feels kind of odd to just drop it there and make such a point of it and never bring it up again. So maybe it'll come up, maybe it won't. Maybe it has something to do with the scar on his head. I have no idea. Now, the Order of the X stuff felt a little samey. Uh, it's just more X-Men, or X-Forcers in this case, versus a bunch of dudes. Uh, the wrinkle about them getting some bad pollen is kind of interesting, and it facilitated, you know, the story of the pale girl being told. Uh, also, the, uh, you know, the markings on their face, you know, the etching the X over their mouths. Uh, it, that's very, uh, it, it's very devoted, right? I mean, that's pretty cool uh, that it's just something, I guess. It's something that differentiates them from... The other weirdos around there, so there's that. Uh, now, speaking of the uh, the pale girl and uh, what the pale girl may or may not have done here, I hate to harp on it, but the opening of the story, where Wolverine somehow murders his entire team, I know I mentioned it already during the synopsis, but really, how many times do we need to open a Wolverine story with this gimmick? Right? It's I swear we've seen it so many times before, and, I mean, it's not like it's a bad story, or a bad kickoff point, but the payoff is, like, damn near guaranteed to be highly unsatisfying. It, it, it just feels like a real played-out way to kick off this fresh new volume. It's like, wow, didn't we already... Is this, is this a repeat? Are we in repeats already? I don't know. 
some lack of consistency here uh, and with regards to characters and their appearances. Um, again, stuff I mentioned during the synopsis, but it's worth, or it bears repeating, perhaps. Uh, Kitty is here when she should be dead. Uh, Beast looks like he's got his full mane back like he used to back in the while ago. Um, Domino's face is unscarred. I mean, again, I, I hate to harp, but, uh, I mean, we've got like, we've got like near a half dozen editors working on this family of books, right? Are we to believe that these pages haven't gone across any of their tables? Uh, come on. <laughs> okay, enough about the first story. The second story, which had vampires in it, so I felt like it was a lot weaker. Though, that's really not the fault of the story itself. I mean... Whether or not I care about vampires should not come into into anyone's mind when they're writing a story. Uh, I remember back, oh, what was it, like 2009, 2010 or so, they launched X-Men Volume 3, right? And uh, we were all psyched to have like our first X-Men number 1 in 20 or so years. Could you imagine that? 20 years between X-Men number 1s. We don't go 20 months anymore. We were 20 years so they bring this guy, Victor Gishler, in, and he tells a horrible vampire story. Uh, was Twilight already big by then? Yeah, probably. Anyway, I thought that story sucked. And yeah, I thought this kind of sucked, too. I thought it was cool to see Omega Red again, though I could have sworn he was already on Krakoa from around House or Powers of X number 5. Uh, they did show a panel with like a bunch of, or like maybe three or four Omega Red-looking folks in it. Maybe those were all different people. Maybe none of them were actually him. I don't know. But it was cool to see him, simply because it felt more like we were reading an X-Men comic. Um, the vampires, though, I couldn't care less. Uh, I did dig or appreciate some parts of the story here, um, besides the great art, because Bogdanovic really, really brought it here. It was wonderful, wonderful-looking story. Um but uh, other parts that don't have anything to do with the art, uh, Magneto and Wolverine arguing about whether or not Arcady ought to remain on Krakoa. I kind of dug that. Though Magneto using the old chestnut of, you know, hey, we're pretty bad guys ourselves is, is wildly played out at this point. Um, but I do appreciate the fact that Wolverine talked about the trauma that comes with death. And uh, to this point, it's never been mentioned, right? That's something I've really, really... Mentioned that it hasn't been mentioned. I've, I've really taken the creative teams to task for that. And I mean, hell, Wolverine brushed off Quentin Quire's decapitation death just a couple issues ago uh, in a book written by the same dude who wrote this exchange. I don't know. Uh, the lack of emotion regarding deaths was really one of the things that stuck out to me as being uh, rather off-putting. And... Uh, I mean, we all know that death is easily reversed in comics in general, more so now in the X-Books than ever. But like Wolverine and I have said, you can't erase the trauma. You know, let's just hope that they keep that in mind moving forward. And maybe, just keep it in mind, you know, just keep it in mind as they go forward here that uh, there are longer lasting effects than, you know, bingo mango pop out of an egg. Uh, the Vampire Hunter, Louise. Eh, <laughs> It felt Wolverine-y, right? To have a female sidekick, right? Uh, but, I mean, it could have been anybody. It could have been anybody here. Uh, again, that's not the fault of the story or anything. It just... I guess it just didn't move my needle in one direction or the other. Uh, Wolverine not being affected after being bit by the vampires was a bit odd. Uh, considering I'm, I'm like 95% sure we've seen him turn into one before. At least once before. Probably in that awful Gishler run, as a matter of fact, because I know there was a cover that depicted Wolverine as having vampire fangs in that run. Uh, as stated during the synopsis, I wonder if Dracula's ability to walk in daylight is due to Wolverine's blood, which I guess could be sort of kind of interesting. Though again, if Wolverine's already been bitten by vampires, wouldn't this have come to light before now? No, no pun intended. Um, Omega Red playing both sides, it works. I'm not all that jazzed about it, but it's fine. I'm not entirely sure what to expect moving on with this series, since we do have two, you know, we've got two starter st stories here. Um, maybe we'll alternate issues for each story, or maybe we'll do one whole story and then address the second one. I don't know. Uh, it does seem like an odd way to launch a series, but, uh, yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, overall, um... 
I mean, this wasn't bad. It just felt like a couple of random issues of Wolverine. Nothing about them screamed a number one, and neither one felt special. Uh, You could have told me that this was like mostly from an issue from the turn of the century that Frank Thierry sleptwalked through writing, and I'd probably believe it. Like I said, it's not bad or anything, it just doesn't feel special. And uh, maybe it's maybe it's the curmudgeon in me, maybe it's the purist in me, but uh, I feel like if you're going to launch uh, like an all-new number one and charge eight bucks for the privilege of owning it, it needs to feel special. And, uh, well, this didn't. It was just stories, inoffensive stories, but uh, it didn't feel special. So that, my friends, is Wolverine number one. Both stories. But before we cut out of here, let's dip into the mailbag here. We got a couple letters to go through. We're going to start with Damien, who's discussing Excalibur number seven. He says, It's weird to hear you read out my comments about going back to work on my first day at home on lockdown, or first day back at home on lockdown. All non essential retail has been closed for the next four weeks. Hopefully, I won't have to wait seven months to get back to work this time. And man, I'm really sorry to hear that. Uh, That sucks. Um, It feels like every time the restrictions are lifted a bit, like the pendulum swings too far, right? We wind up overdoing it. We like forget, we forget that there's still a virus out there. Um, Here in my area, uh, the governor announced that, you know, the, uh, the dining in restriction was lifted, right? So we can now go to restaurants again. And uh, you'd think there might be a little bit of trepidation there, right? It's like, It's like we go from not leaving our houses to, hey, you guys want to be part of a giant petri dish crammed into a into a tiny building while you while you eat and breathe and talk and cough and and sneeze. You know, they lifted the restrictions here and no sooner did they do so that then there were lines, literal lines around the buildings of these restaurants with folks trying to get in. And I mean, of course, the next few weeks we would see a surge in cases. I mean, just because the restrictions are relaxed, that doesn't mean we're home free. I, I really wish we were smart enough to realize that without government intervention. You know, as much as I don't want another like like stay-at-home order passed from the government, I really wish we'd use a little bit more common sense. It's it's rough. It's real rough. Um, it's a uh, yeah, I won't go any further into it. It's just, it sucks. It's, it's a thing. And I'm really, really sorry to hear that uh, that you're back out of work for, for the next little while. Uh, Damien continues. I loved this issue of Excalibur. It really focused on characterization, which I strongly believe is Teeny Howard's biggest strength as a writer. I think it's the first time that the whole team has appeared together with every character given some time. You can clearly see what motivates them all. And definitely, definitely agree with you. I think I mentioned this in the review of Excalibur number 7, but I think this was the best issue yet for the series, uh, purely for the reasons that you listed. It felt like a fun team book for the first time since its inception, without, you know, all this stodgy magic stuff getting in the way. Well, not not much stodgy magic, there was still some of that, but I mean, it was it was just a part of the story instead of being the entire story. So here, I mean, we had just a, we just had a good time catching up with our cast, and, uh... It feels like the first actual breath we've been able to take with these folks since, you know, since House of X number one, since this entire thing started. These characters have just been hustle, bustle, and basically background noise to the to the overarching plot. So it was really cool. I mean, I hate to compare it to like the the downtime issues from Scott Lobdell's run, but uh, because there was plenty of action here, but comparative comparatively speaking. This was very much a quiet issue. It wasn't, it wasn't you know, soldiers, char- knights charging at one another, another world. There were no dragons flying around. This was just nice. It was a nice break. Uh, Damien continues. You mentioned Pete Wisdom being everywhere, but actually he's written within a very small area. We've been shown that he lives very close to Buckingham Palace, and that is very close to London Zoo. He really hasn't gone beyond a half-mile radius of his home. <laughs> I told you all, I'm not a worldly fella. <laughs> you, they could have been on opposite sides of the planet, for all, or opposite sides of the country, I should say. I I don't know. <laughs> Plus, I'm used to things being kind of spread apart out here. You know, like, 
when some folks think about touring California, for example, like I think some folks think that they could uh, they could see the Hollywood sign, go to the Golden Gate Bridge, and then stop at stop for lunch at Disneyland and like do it like all within like two hours. When there's actually you know hundreds of miles between all these things and uh, a very very long drive, uh, you know six to eight hours if you're if you're lucky and don't hit traffic. So I'm used to things being spread out quite a bit more than uh, than they are in in London, I suppose. Uh, Damien continues, I do find it hard to imagine that London Zoo would be willing to sell some of their animals to a hunter. We have some pretty stringent laws here governing the sale of animals. Also, hunting with dogs has been banned since 2004. And uh, I guess that's why that zookeeper was being a little little bit shifty. Not terribly forthcoming <laughs> with what they did with those, those poor defenseless war wolves. Uh, Damien continues, it's really weird seeing Betsy say that she'd never been hunting. I remember reading stories set in the 80s where Betsy was in her mid to late 20s. A woman of that age and upbringing would definitely have been hunting. It was an aristocratic pursuit. It probably adds up to a woman of of her age in 2020 could never have been involved in a legal hunt, but it doesn't add up for me. Curse you, sliding timeline. And yes, that's certainly a case where the sliding timeline can affect our characters' upbringings here. Uh, Definitely not something I would have thought of, but uh, now it certainly stands out. Really makes you wonder. I mean, best case scenario, the comic books are still a thing that exists in 20 years. Uh, but it makes you wonder how much society will change in those next 20 years. And uh, I almost shudder at the thought of how our characters will be updated to reflect all that. Uh, Damien continues, or actually Damien uh, wraps up here with, Was Cullen Bloodstone always villainous? I don't recall. I don't understand why they had to create a demonic horse. As far as I'm concerned, all horses are evil. They just can't help it. And I don't know that he was always so much, like, on-the-face villain, right? I recall him being portrayed as kind of a pompous jerk during Avengers Arena, but uh, I don't remember him being, you know, just a flat-out bad guy. And I'm not sure how... I'm trying to think if we've seen him in the interim, and uh, I'm probably not the right person to ask. I don't know where he might have popped up, maybe in one of the 7,000 Avengers comics out there. Um, but uh, I, I haven't seen him since Avengers Academy, I mean Avengers Arena, and uh, whatever spun out of Avengers Arena, the thing that was not as good. I don't remember what it was called, but uh, yes. And uh, Avengers Arena is actually one of those stories I would just love to revisit at some point. Uh, but you know, time being what it is, and my collection being the mess that it is, It'd probably take me like a, a month that I don't have just to dig it out of the long box jungle, but uh, definitely a, a fun series that I would recommend to most people. It's a, it's a lot of fun. But thank you so much for uh, for writing in, Damien. And again, uh, best to you in the uh, in the in the job uh, as it pertains to the job here. I, I just really really stinks that uh, that you're back, you know, uh, off duty. So sorry to hear that, and and best to you. Uh, Next, we have a letter from Al, and he's reading X-Force number one. He says, I'm up to X-Force number one now, only one more to go for volume one of Dawn of X. So let's see where this one goes. First, that opening scene was good, very James Bondish, perfect for Domino. And of course, this is where Domino was sitting at that table with uh, Zeno, and uh, I think they were all like cutting their hands to to test if there's any uh, any mutant blood in anybody there. And I agree, that's a, that's a perfect scene for Domino. Unfortunately, it feels like we've seen Domino in this exact same scene like a dozen times before. So, a little bit of a fatigue there. It's one of the reasons why anytime I see Domino on a cover of one of these things, I kind of I shudder a bit, because I, I really think she's got one story, and they just keep telling it over and over again. Uh, Al continues, I want to know what's up with that weird animal. Is Beast going to get a pet? And I actually had to stop and think here. I, I'm like, what is he talking about? But uh, I forgot that Beast was attacked by a beast. <laughs> and uh, basically to facilitate Wolverine coming down and having a very forced conversation about how the mutants were becoming soft on Krakoa. And uh, I'm afraid I got some bad news, because I, I don't think that animal is ever coming back. Though, I have been wrong before. Al continues. I don't remember seeing Colossus in Marauders. Will we see their side of this and finding Colossus in Marauders number two? Or will this be one of those things that happens between issues? And uh, it's the second one, I think. Um, Colossus doesn't show up in Marauders, and his being on Kitty's boat won't be followed up there. um, So it was kind of just this one one one-off scene. 
and it'll take seven issues to actually begin to pay off. I th- we just read X X Force number seven, I believe, or number yeah, I think it was number seven, and uh, that's where we start to get some insight into into everything that Colossus saw. Of course, Colossus will make a cameo fighting the Fantastic Four, but Lord only knows when that story was supposed to happen. But uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely one of those things that happened between issues. And uh, it's going to take a little while for it to, uh, to come back around. I'm hopeful that the next issue of X-Force you know, maybe gives us a little bit more about that. Uh, Al continues, Your comment about the attackers looking like characters from Wetworks made me laugh. I forgot about that book. Personally, I thought they looked like Reavers, the original ones from the Hellfire Club. Cole, Macon, and Reese. Why do I remember their names? And yes, you're definitely more right than I was. <laughs> they will be uh, revealed as, uh, at the very least, a, a Reavers adjacent. Um, I, I don't know that they're full-blown Reavers, but they are definitely adjacent. Um, Al continues. Now about that Xavier Black Tom scene. I didn't take it as Xavier threatening Tom's job. I took it as him trying to explain that everyone needs to learn how to trust. He has to trust the council just as they have to trust him. And yeah, that that's that's possible and probable. I just didn't appreciate how dismissive Xavier was of Black Tom. Um, if you know, if Xavier puts Tom into a position, it suggests that he trusts him, and to dismiss his concerns the way he did really just didn't sit right with me. Um, and I don't think we've seen Charles apologize for this either, considering it turned out that Tom was 100% right in this case. So, I don't know, it still just didn't sit right with me. I didn't like uh, the dismissiveness of the discussion. Uh, Al continues, I did not see that ending coming. How did how do the resurrection protocols work if Xavier's gone? And of course, X-Force number one ended with Professor X getting his brains blown out by the Wetworks guys. And, you know, when I saw that, I thought, you know, wow, we got so many possibilities here, right? That My mind was racing with all the interesting ways that this could go. So many questions came to mind. You know, how would resurrections work? Could there even still be resurrections? Would Cerebro still work? What would ha- what Does Mora know that uh, that Charles is dead? We get none of that. We, we get absolutely none of that. And by now, you already know that Xavier will be back <laughs> in a couple issues. He'll just pop out of an egg. All's well that ends well. And uh, all we'll do is just have the specter of, hey, Xavier was one shot hanging over our heads for the next several issues here because, hell, they mentioned it in this very issue of Wolverine. And uh, I'm sure it's not the last we'll hear of it. Al wraps up with, if Boomer is dead, they better get on those protocols quickly. And you're safe, because Boomer's okay. Uh, She'll live to get wildly drunk another day. I think she was just a familiar face that they could cram into this scene, so where it's not all just, like, nameless facelesses. And uh, you'll be seeing Boom Boom quick enough. You'll be seeing her in uh, New Mutants number three. So she'll be... She'll be sloppy drunk, but she will be there. So uh, look forward to that. And by now, you've you've already heard it. But thank you so much for uh, for keeping up. And uh, yeah, you've got one issue left for the Dawn of X number ones, and uh, it's a doozy. It's a doozy. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on Fallen Angels. But uh, we have one more letter, and it's from our friend Jeremiah, who uh, we haven't heard from in a while. This is all about X-Men number one. He says, I finally read X-Men number one and listened to your show. Hopefully now I'll try to read and listen more. I'm so glad you brought up the room chart where Wolverine has a room in the summer house. That really threw me. I didn't read any of the online chatter about the open relationship. I'm looking forward to catching up with your show and the comics. And thank you, Jeremiah. I know how I know how hard it is to keep up. I, I mean, especially with all the, the content coming out from this channel and, of course, many others. So I definitely appreciate you popping back to, uh, to check in. And, uh, and catch up uh, Now I didn't keep up with any of the online chatter either I try my best not to Even when I am up to date with what I'm reading um, Especially now that I'm not So this Was all brand new information to me as well And it was A little bit jarring to see that Wolverine Was living with the Summers is, 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 is. And uh, I guess really didn't make all that much sense because I always saw Jean as like this bone of contention between Cyclops and Wolverine, right? So to see here that they're all just kind of on board, they're all okay with the concept of this open relationship, it just doesn't sit right with me. Um, I don't see Scott agreeing to such a thing. Hell, I, I don't 
I don't see Jean wanting any part of this either. I'm not saying that she would choose one or the other. I don't know who she would choose, but I'd assume that she'd want to actually choose one and stick with that one, one or the other, not both. This just feels... I mean, it's weird, it feels weird to say out of character because, I mean, what are characters nowadays? We we don't even know. So, uh, as far as my headcanon's concerned, this is wildly out of character for all three of them. I don't think that Wolf, even Wolverine, he wouldn't, I don't think he'd want to share uh, a woman with, with someone. I, it feels weird. And, I mean, this might just go back to the possibility that there is a measure of manipulation at play here. I mean, actually, just the other day, we talked about that hot take theory from uh, Evan about, uh, hey, maybe these mutants that we're reading about aren't the real ones. Maybe they're just uh, they're just pawns, you know? Uh, the real ones are in stasis, and these are just chess pieces being played with by Professor X, you know? But that might be... the, the This bizarre love triangle might be the most jarring... Um, Bit of just out of character portrayal that we've seen to this point. Um, there's been a lot of weirdness, but this, to me, might be the the weirdest of the weird. And uh, I'm not sure where it's going. There have been rumors online, or I, I suppose they're probably not even rumors anymore. But some stuff I did see, some stuff that people sent me, was that there might be a romance between Cyclops and Wolverine involved in this uh, in this love triangle. So I suppose we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, that also feels out of character, but uh, I guess we'll just wait and see, and we'll see how it uh, how it works out or or doesn't work out, as the as the case might be. But thanks again for checking in, Jeremiah. Please don't uh, don't be a stranger. I, I always love hearing from you, so thank you. And I think that is where we'll put a pin in it for today. We are officially. In Wave 2 of the Dawn of X line here, Wolverine number 1 is checked off. I believe our next number 1 will be Cable. And that's not too long from now. It's just a handful of episodes away. And then we'll have Hellions, and uh, sometime a little bit later on we'll kick off X-Factor. But uh, that'll do it for today. So if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me, uh, you could do so on Twitter at Ace Comics or via the Gmail box at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and blog posts and all sorts of stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Uh, 90s X-Men on Facebook and the full audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And uh, I think this episode is ending just in time for my voice to completely, completely give up on me. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's fortuitous, I suppose. Uh, just one more giant thank you for everyone to everyone for uh, hanging out and sharing your time with me. It really, really means a lot. And uh, until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>